one day you will die. How about that for an introduction, huh? Yeah, great, good, good. that's wonderful. Uh, I think that, that, that most of us who, who are believers, probably when life is really hard or our, our bodies are really not operating correctly and going downhill quick, we probably long for, for that today. And I don't think too many of us are, are not longing for, for it per se. It's just the journey to get there, right? That, that's what we're not really excited about. But one day, after it's all said and done, you will die unless the Lord comes back first. I mean, nobody gets out of this alive. One day your heart will stop beating. One day your lungs will stop breathing. One day there will be no brain waves. One day you will be pronounced dead. And according to probability, you will be buried traditional sort of way. So you will end up at a funeral home. Your body will be embalmed. You will be in a casket in a vault six feet underground. That's our prospect. Now, according to Scripture, if you are a believer, at when when you when you die. In a spirit form, your spirit, your soul, consciously but disembodied, it goes to be with the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Yet today, Jesus' body would be in the tomb. Today, the thief's body would be in the tomb. But Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there's some way you can be absent uh, from the body, present with the, the Lord. Now, one day, though, what will happen according to Scripture is we, our bodies, will be raised again. I mean, we're we're talking not metaphorical, not allegorical, not some spiritual sense, literally historical. Our bodies, your body, will be raised from the dead. And right away, we've got some logistic issues, don't we? I mean, whoa, hang on a second here. I mean, if I'm in a casket in a vault six feet underground, now my body raises spiritually, you kind of like go all through through that. I can see that, got it. But if it raises physically, I mean, how is that, that's how's that going to work? And what if I've been cremated? Or what if my body has gone through incredible decay? Who knows when the Lord's going to come back? Or what if my body has been destroyed in some horrific accident or, you know, died at sea and the sharks ate me, that kind of thing? How is this really going to work? How is that going to going to going to make? And and why are we doing this again? I mean, I mean, I mean, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, right? And so that can't be a bad thing. So we're having a good time there. And now I got to be reunited with my body. I don't like my body. You know, I was kind of hoping I'd get a better one the next time around. You know, I want something taller. Or I want something more hair, or more muscular. I want to look like you know Dwayne Johnson. Or I'm gonna. I want a better figure. Or I want green eyes. You know, we want something a little bit different. So, so why are we gonna do this again? I'm not so sure. I'm liking this idea. Um, sometimes we, we, we have this, this idea that the body that we have is a, you know, it's like a wrapper. 
You know, it's like a shell. And the real us is inside. And, and we, we, we talk like this sometimes. That when we die, we're just going to put away that old thing and we're just going to zoom and we're going to be free at last and we're going to be, we're going to be good. And, and they, the body, that's a bad thing. We want to be rid of the body. We do need to understand that that's not a biblical concept. That is a, a Greek philosophical thing. That's what the Greeks were hoping for. The body was, uh, was a bad thing and, and the death was a time you could finally get rid of it and that caused all your pain and your issues and finally there and now you're you're free but that's not a biblical uh, concept at all keep in mind your body was given before the fall body's a good thing and this is wild jesus died for the redemption of your body just as much as he died for the redemption of your soul according to, according to scripture you might say, well, well you know, you know, you know, uh, my body is broken. I mean, I mean I've got to pump insulin into this thing to get it to work right. I've got to take all this medication to get it to do what it's supposed to do. I'm, I'm in, in a wheelchair. I have to use a walker. I've got arthritis. I've got a heart thing or a back thing or a stomach thing and chronic pain. My body is broken, and I don't like my body. It's broken. And I would say, that's right. I, I can relate. I am there. Now, mine's not really a leg thing. It's a brain thing. No, no comments, right? We're not going to go down that road right now. <laughs> But I, I, I can, I, that, that's right. That's why the Bible says we will be giving glorified bodies. Now we're not talking about bodies like when you were 21 or 22 or at your prime and everything was working the way it was supposed to be working and looking the way it was. We're talking multiple levels beyond that. We're talking before the fall bodies. We're talking like what you would have received in the Garden of Eden if Adam and Eve hadn't blown it. We're talking uh, bodies like we would not know. That's the kind of bodies we will receive. Now here's the problem. We are uh, uh, sophisticated people. We're educated people. We, we're this is not you know first country bumpkin church, right? We 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 are smart folk, and in all honesty, it is, it's not like there's this real sense of, of of we don't really need this thing, right? I mean, this is you trying to encourage me today, Mary? It's not it's not happening. Okay, we're not we're not going there. It's 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 not working. We we we, we don't we we think yeah Jesus can rise from the dead. He's kind of God and all that. So that works. Fine. But that was a long time ago, and I'm kind of fairy taleish a little bit, maybe. But, but but us, me, nah, I'm not not so sure. You know, this is exactly the place the Corinthians were in. Uh, educated people, Church of Corinth was not your, you know, first Church of Corinth, country bumpkins. These guys, this was like the, the the L.A. or the New York City. These guys in Corinth were the aspiring actresses and actors, and and the financial whiz kids, and the the prima donna entertainment type folk, and and the the, the people who were movers and shakers, and the intelligentsia, and the the philosophy professors at your liberal schools. And these were just the thinkers, and the, they wrote the textbooks, and they were the people. And out of that group, there was a group that was called out to be the church and they brought their stuff with them and they're they're, they're thinking they were cultured they, they had their greek culture yeah we don't need a resurrection it's not an important thing and i would say that we're real similar we're, we're educated intelligent common sense people and we've been cultured as well our culture's spin on the end times may be a little bit different than ancient Greece, but just as unbiblical. And we're kind of products of that. We're going, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So, so Paul, 
coolest thing, the book of Corinthians. Paul writes this book of Corinthians. You know the book of Corinthians. First 14 chapters, he's dealing with all kinds of stuff, right? He's dealing with, with sex and division and money and supernatural things and pride. And there's just all kinds of wild stuff going on in Corinthians. And, and then he gets to chapter 15. And you would think he should just close it down, right? Because this is already the longest epistle he's written. And it's like, you know what, Paul, can we just put an amen on it and move on? And Paul says, no, 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 no. There's, there's one other thing we need to talk about. We need to talk about the resurrection. And you can imagine the Corinthians are going, what? Are you serious? We just talked about all this. Others, We don't need the resurrection. But Paul knows this, that the resurrection is not a doctrine for tomorrow. It's a doctrine for today. And if they would have understood the resurrection, he would not have had to write half of the stuff that he wrote. The reality is this, the, the, the doctrine of the resurrection I mean, we talk doctrine, right? Doctrine sounds like a boring thing. But wimpy theology equals wimpy Christians who just will not be able to stand up under the onslaught that's coming. They just won't be able to make it. And so, so it's imperative. Uh, this, this doctrine, there's no, there's no throwaway stuff in here. The, 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 this, this doctrine is like a, a huge piece in this puzzle that you're putting together about understanding God's word and who he is and his plan of redemption. And it's a big piece, and you pop it in there, and it fits so perfectly, suddenly you can see things you couldn't see before when you understand the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection is like a, a cord that is woven through your, your tapestry of, of faith, and it's just making making it stronger. And so Paul knows that for us to understand resurrection from God's eyes, from his perspective, it's not head, just head, head knowledge stuff. It will transform our lives. And so chapter 15, even though he'd gone through all this time and stuff, he says, there's one more thing. And the entire chapter deals with just one thing. It's the only chapter in Corinthians deals purely with doctrine. It deals with the resurrection. And he wants to get the people there. But before he does, he's got to kind of set the table. You know, they've been all over the place. He's kind of got to bring the whole group to thinking that's real, really in line with where he's going. And so that's what he's going to do in the text that's before us today. So if you've got your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Turn on your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. And we're going to dig, jump right in to kind of a, a famous text on one level, but I dare say there's a lot of stuff here that can be confusing and make us want to relegate this one to the bottom of the, the list of stuff we're supposed to be reading. So let's dig right in, though. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, this, look at that for just a second. He's, he's reminding them of something, right? He's not trying to convince them of anything. Some folk have said that right here he's trying to prove the resurrection. He's not trying to prove it. He's going to get into it in a minute. He's not trying to prove it. They already believe it, he said. You, 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 I've preached this to you and you've received it. And you didn't just like receive it and then, you know, it didn't work for you or the emotion wore off and you kind of walked away. No, no, no. In it you stand. You're standing in it right now. You're holding to it right now. And by which you, you are saved. And he says this kind of cryptic last line, right? If, unless, 
You say, well, what is that line for? Well, I think it would be similar to to here this morning if I said, y'all, we're going to talk about the gospel. And some of you would go, yay. Yeah, I mean, it's good. I like the gospel and all. But, you know, we've heard this. And, and, you know, Jesus died for your sins. And you go, yeah, that's right. No, that's good. That's good. Good news. That's right. What time? Are we almost done here? We just get a little bit. And I'd say, you know what? And it saves you. And you say, yeah, it saves us. I'd say, and it's going to bring you to heaven one day. And you go, yeah, it will. And then I looked at you and I said, maybe. I don't know. Suddenly you'd go, whoa, 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 wait, wait, what's with the maybe? I don't know. So what are you talking about? That's, I think that's what Paul is doing here. You know, is when he puts this thing out, especially after all the stuff he's talked about, this is going to be like Yawn City. And so, so he says, ah, maybe you are. Maybe this whole thing is just a game. It's a charade and really it doesn't make any sense. You know, he's going to come back to this line later on. But he's just kind of leaving them hanging. He's just trying to get their attention. So we're just going to leave us hanging too. We're going to come back to it later on as well in the next uh, weeks. But verse 3, this is the gospel. Okay, this is what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. A couple things. He's going to deliver to them the main thing. This is the most important There's lots of other issues we've talked about in this book, significant things, but secondary things. There's a lot of stuff that will divide the body of Christ. There's a lot of stuff we can go to war on, right? There's a lot of stuff we can dig deep and we can split the body without thinking twice about it. And Paul says, you know, those are secondary things. You want to know what the gospel is. You want to know what the most important is, the main thing. It's right here. All those other things, we should study the word of God and know those things and have convictions, etc. But those things kind of tell you what stripe of a Christian you are. This, what Paul's going to say right here, tells you whether or not you are one. And so, so he, this is something, and notice this is something that he received. This is not something that he just came up with. Now, now let's let's think for just a minute here, right? Paul is writing in about oh, fifty-three to fifty-five A.D. He's writing to the church of Corinth. Now he planted the church forty-six. 47, 48 A.D. We're not really sure, but somewhere right in there. Now, Paul says. What I delivered to you when I planted the church, what I shared with you is what I received. Now, when did he receive it? Well, uh, Paul, most scholars believe that Paul accepted, came in his counter with Christ sometime like 33 to 35 A.D. Jesus, right, is crucified, resurrected, ascended 30 A.D. So you're getting this whole picture. 30 A.D. Jesus, 33 to 35, somewhere Paul comes to know him. He plants this church 10, 12 years later. Then five years later, he's writing the letter to him. So you got the thing. And Paul says, when I planted this church, I gave you what was given to me. Now, most, that was like in 33 now, most scholars, now we're not just talking conservative scholars, so folk who don't, don't, they're not even sure they believe in Jesus' uh, existence per se, they'll, they'll say that what Paul's about to share in verses 3 through 5, it's the oldest Christian creed, that Paul did not come up with this. 
uh, this is something he received, and the grammar here and every, syntax, everything else is so not Paul. So we know he's quoting something here. And most folks will say that this was written 18 to 24 months after Jesus died, rose, ascended. Now, this whole thought that, that you know what, uh, people start talking, and then decades and decades and decades later, as they told the story over and over, then Jesus kind of became, you know, superhuman. No, no, this was written down in Jerusalem, where it would have happened a year and a half to two years after it happened. I mean, this is the oldest Christian creed. And Paul's going to go through it. It only takes... Four parts, right? This is the gospel, and he's got four four pieces here. It says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve. Now, just look at that for, for a four pieces, right? But really kind of only two. He died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he was buried. Buried just proves that he died. You don't bury live people, right? We got that. Uh, then he rose, third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared. The appearance just proves the second part, that, that he rose. Now, what we let's look at these for just a second, because this is the gospel. We just got to be on the right same page here. It's what he wants the Corinthians to be on. Uh, Jesus died. Now, it's well-established historical fact, all kinds of persuasions of, of, of New Testament scholars. Jesus died early 30s in Jerusalem by Roman crucifixion. Jesus was beaten uh, badly before his uh, crucifixion. Jesus was then uh, whipped with a flagrant, a, a, a cat of nine tails, three foot long uh, whip, uh, nine pieces of leather coming off the whip. At the end of each one, you've got pieces of, of metal or glass, uh, uh, rough stone, um, so that when they whipped him, it would, of course, have its maximum effect. This was not a Roman of, of, of Whipping, so or a Jewish whipping, so they could only do thirty-nine stripes then, right? Max. This was Roman. They could whip him all day if they wanted to, and they probably they 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 stopped just shy of of death. We know that Jesus was in, uh, greatly weakened because of his beating because he wasn't even able to carry his cross all the way to Golgotha. Somebody else had to pick it up and, and carry it for him. Now, um, what's the guy's name? His name is Alexander Metherol. He's a medical doctor, PhD, renowned pathologist. He said this, he said that most probably Jesus would have gone into hypovolemic shock due to the extreme blood loss. That was the heart racing to pump missing blood, severe blood pressure drop, kidney malfunction, and extreme thirst. Uh, Three, three guys, William Edwards, Wesley Gable, and Floyd Hosmer, in 1986 authored an article for the Journal of the American Medical Association. This is the most prestigious uh, medical journal. And it was discussing the death of Jesus. And they said this, they said, as the victim hangs on the cross, his lung cavity collapses so that he can no longer exhale. In order to breathe, he must pull himself up on those nails pierced hands and push with his feet until he can catch a breath. He cannot remain in this position for long. 
so he has to let himself drop back down. Of course, he's going up and down, up and down. This continues until he dies of asphyxiation. Then just to make sure he was dead, the Roman guard, right, put the spear into his side to uh, pierce his heart. In the same article in the AMA journal, they say this. They say, clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung but also the pericardium and heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Jesus died. He's talking to the Corinthians. You guys, you bought this. You believe this. It's the gospel. Most important. Jesus died. But notice why he died. He died for our sins. Right? Uh, the, the church is it's a great thing. It's kind of an emergency room in some ways. We are hurting people who need comfort, healing. We are lonely people who need community. We are purposeless people. We need significance. But you need to know Jesus did not die for our significance or, or die for our community or die for comfort. We get all those things. But he died for our sins. This is so huge today when Christianity, religion is going so many different directions. we got to get back to what it says. He, more than anything else, we are sinners in need of salvation. This is why Jesus died. And he died for us in this regard according to the scriptures. I love this. This was not just somebody's great idea. This was not someone looking at, at the fact they didn't want Jesus to die, but he died. So they got all these lemons. They're going to figure out how to make lemonade. Oh, okay, this is why. This is not, not a, a human philosophy. This was inspired. This was according to the scriptures. Jesus died. You know, it was shortly after his resurrection. Remember the stories, Luke 24. He's walking down the road, and there's a couple of guys walking down with him, and they're looking down. And he says, hey, how come you guys are looking down? And they said, well, you know, we thought we found the Messiah, but they went and killed him. And so Jesus says this to them. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Of course, Moses wrote the first five books of, of, of the Old Testament, the Bible. So where did Jesus come? Maybe Jesus started with, with Genesis 3.15, when, when God said that the Messiah one day would crush the head of the serpent, but his He's going to get, or he's going to crush the serpent, but he's going to be wounded in the process. Maybe he goes to, to chapter 17, I think it is, where Abraham is going to sacrifice, maybe it's 21. Abraham is going to remember sacrificing his only son, Isaac. Remember the story? He takes him up on Mount Moriah, the father, sacrificing the only son of promise. Fast forward a couple thousand years, the father, the only son, exact same place, Mount Moriah. Jesus, but Jesus dies this time. Maybe he took him to, to Psalm 22, where it, where it depicts Roman crucifixion hundreds of years before Roman crucifixion was even invented. Isaiah 53, where it says the Messiah is going to suffer. All, all of scripture. This was not like an afterthought. This was God's plan before time began. And Paul's just reminding the Corinthians, you're, you're, you're buying this, right? Remember, you've received this. You've accepted this, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. Again, proof that he, he died. You don't bury live people. We covered that. Um, 
Matthew, Mark, and John, real important, they tell us where Jesus is going to be buried. He's being buried in Joseph of Arimathea's grave. Now, why that's important is because that's like the grave address. They're, they're letting us know of all the different graves, and there's all kinds of... Joseph is a rich guy. His grave is like the Cadillac grave. Everyone knows where it's at. It's the cool-looking thing. The women go, and they watch them lay Jesus' body in the grave. They watch the, the Roman guards come to that same grave and move the stone over it and seal it with the Roman seal. They watch the Roman guards stand in front of it. There's no mistaking, according to Scripture, what grave they're referring to. He, he was buried, according to John chapter 20, according to Jewish burial custom which according to John chapter 20, they take 75 pounds of spices and, and, and linen and they wrap up your body and then they smear this, this spices, linen, gummy stuff all over it and then they wrap it up again. Then they smear another layer and they wrap it up again. It's kind of like a mummification thing almost. Now just, just think, someone takes 75 pounds of duct tape, right? And they wrap you up. Are you getting up off the table? No, you are stuck. If the crucifixion wanted to kill Jesus, the burial would have, right? And so he, he is, he is, he is buried. Uh, he died. He's buried. He didn't almost die. He died. But then he rose on the third day according to scriptures maybe he's looking at the book of Jonah maybe he's looking at Hosea Ezekiel again Isaiah 53 this this idea of resurrection was shouldn't have been a strange thing that's why Jesus yelled at those guys in Luke 24 it says but then it says but then he appeared it's in a passive voice, so actually he was seen by. He was seen by, uh, and he tells us several different folk. First of all, he's seen by Cephas, right? That was the first name he said, which was Peter. Uh, then to the twelve, the apostles. Now, of course, the twelve, at this point in history, there are eleven, right? Because Judas had killed himself before Jesus rose. The twelve became like a title, a name. It was the, it was the group. Everyone knew who the, the twelve was. That's what it was referred to. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 500 folk. And what he's saying here is, you go check it out. There's a bunch of people. This was not done in a corner somewhere. This was not just something that was hidden. Lots of folk know this. Lots of people saw him. You go ask him. That's where he's going with this. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Now, this creed, uh, this is all true, but it left some things out. Let's just look. According to Scripture, in John chapter 20, Jesus' first appearance actually is to Mary Magdalene. If you look, this it's kind of a fun uh, text because Mary sees Jesus when she realizes it's Jesus. What does she do? She gives him a big hug. Now, if Jesus was a spirit being type thing, she would have hugged him and, whoa, what happened? But she, she hangs on to him, and Jesus can't get away from her. He's trying. He says he's, 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 he's embracing. He says he's, he's pleading with her. Let me go. Leave me alone. <laughs> get away from me. But she's hanging on to Jesus. <laughs> then then it, in, in Matthew 28, Mary and this other woman come to Jesus, and they're hanging on to his feet as well. Uh, Peter in Luke 24 saw Jesus. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus saw Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They didn't see anything in this person that they would make them think he wasn't just a real regular physical person. He then appears to ten apostles. That's because Thomas, remember Thomas, 
he'd already flown the coop. He said, forget this. I'm done with this. It's over. Jesus is dead. So he wasn't even in the group when Jesus first comes. But then Jesus appears to 11 apostles. Thomas is back. We'll look at that one again in a second. He then appears to seven apostles. We talked about that one a couple of weeks ago. These guys had left to go fishing. They were done, and Jesus appears to them. He appears to all of the apostles in Matthew 28. That may just be the 12. It may be way beyond that. It may be anybody who is following after Christ. It could be a good number. Then appears to 500 disciples, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. He appears to James, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. By the way, James was not a believer, right? At this point, James was not a believer until the risen Jesus come to him. James was Jesus' half-brother. He thought that, according to Scripture, he thought Jesus was messed up in his head. He thought this was all a very sad thing, pathetic sort of thing, but he did not think that Jesus was God until Jesus is standing before him. I guess that would make anybody a believer, right? So that's James. Then, then he appears to all the apostles, and then uh, finally he's going to appear to the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 9, verses one through nine. Now, let me just point this out real quick. In John chapter 20, we mentioned a second ago, Jesus came to the apostles, but Thomas wasn't there, right? Now, Thomas, one of of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. It's big news, right? So what's Thomas say? Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I've watched him die. I saw what they did to him. No, he's not alive. Next, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. And Jesus came and stood among them. Then he said to Thomas, like he singles Thomas out. He knows what Thomas is thinking, even though Jesus wasn't. He knows what Thomas is thinking. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not believe, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God called Jesus God. That would have been worth stoning for a Jewish person to call somebody God who wasn't. You know, what's fascinating about this. Thomas, who's running, hurt, sad, unbelieving Thomas. In a few years, we're going to find Thomas in India, where he is murdered. And he's murdered because he was telling the people, you guys, guess what I saw? You're not going to believe this. I put my finger into his hands, into his side. Thomas goes from one unbelieving to one who's martyred. He believed it that much. These these appearances. Paul, in a moment, is going to say, he also appeared to me. But you need to know, Paul doesn't just stop there. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart, not with Paul. Paul's going to use that, but it's not just personal experience. There are evidences out there. Uh And so Paul goes on in verse 8. This is last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This would have been several years, actually, after Jesus had ascended. Again, Acts 9, read the story, it's really cool. But Jesus comes down and sees Paul. Now, I think that when Paul's saying this, I can just see him kind of stop 
and stare away and kind of glaze over with his eyes as he's sinking back to that day on the road to Damascus. You know where he was going, right? Before Jesus uh, intercepted him, he's on his way to Damascus to put in prison to kill Christians. That's what he'd been doing. He hated the church. He hated this talk about Jesus being the Messiah and being God and rising from the dead. He hated that. So he was out to destroy the church. And while he's on the way, Jesus comes to him. He says, Paul, what are you you doing? And that's why he says, uh, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. When you see the resurrected Jesus, when you understand the gospel, I mean, really understand it, it changes your perspective uh, on you. I think most of our problems are our perspective on us. It changes it radically. And, you know, I wish so much I could say this is just a decision. Make it. This is just a doctrine. Adhere to it. These are just words. Say them. But it's almost like you've got to be stricken with this, right? This is, this is uh, Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, he's, he's going to the temple. He's in the temple, and he sees the Lord on the throne, and this Lord's robe fills the whole temple. I mean, he's like more sovereign than, than the throne could handle. He's just huge. And first thing out of Isaiah, first words he says is, Woe is me. Oh, man, I'm dead. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips. He didn't have a problem with cursing or telling dirty jokes or anything. He just knew that that what came out of his heart on a regular basis did not reflect this. Did not take this into account. It was pride and gossip and belittling, victimization and poor me and... and, and he knew. He wasn't told, by the way, when you see God act real sad about your sin. You don't have to be told that. It just, it just kind of happens. I know, uh, I mean, that's what happened to Paul here. So he thinks back. He says, man, I don't even deserve a calling. I don't deserve to be seen Jesus. I don't deserve to be an apostle. I think uh, sometimes... Uh, I come here in this room when nobody's here. I work here, so it's easy enough, right? Sometimes I'll drive to the back of the parking lot, just park and stare at the church. And what I I think then is, uh, uh, Lord, these people don't deserve me. I think that. I think, Lord, they deserve somebody so much stronger than I am. No, no false humility here. If this is real and the church is real, this is serious, this is serious stuff. These people deserve somebody who is, uh, they understand what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit a little bit better than I do. They deserve somebody who's at a level of sanctification that I could only hope to get. These folk need somebody who has a deeper understanding of, of God's word. You know, listen to MacArthur or listen to Andy Stanley and you're going, oh, geez, Louisa, I feel bad for y'all. And I wonder, what have y'all done to deserve me? You know, God must have been some, but, but I, 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 I think that. I'm, I'm there, and I know no false humility, really, because if you knew me as well as I knew me, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor, right? And if I knew you as well as you know you, so it's, it's, but when you see Jesus, when you see the gospel, no guilt, you're just in awe of who he is. Problem with, I have a problem here. I can stay in verse 9. 
I think a lot of Christians can just stay in verse 9. I'm such a loser. I failed. I'm so unworthy. I, I don't deserve much of anything. But, but Paul doesn't do that. We should not do that. You've got to get on to verse 10. Where he says, but... By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. His grace is a little bit bigger than my failure. His, his ability to work through people like me is a whole lot bigger than my ability to screw up. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you have believed. Do you see what he, he's saying? He says, I'm not second, I'm not a secondary apostle. I know what I've done, and I know where I've been, and I know what I've accomplished for hell. But, but God's grace, it's not about my performance. Uh, apostles don't have anything on me, because God's grace that's in them is in me. What we need to know is we're not secondary saints to Amy Carmichael or George Mueller or Jim Elliott. Ann Graham Lotz or Beth Moore or John Ortberg. Same grace of God that they've got, we have. They have no more than we've got. Same God. Paul is saying, believe it or not, God can use someone like me. Believe it or not, God can use us on the same level. This understanding of the resurrection is so amazing, and he's just going to unpack more and more and more in some of the questions down the road. But it starts with it understanding that when I understand that which is most important, when I understand the gospel, when I've seen Jesus, I see myself for who I really am. And you know what? It doesn't make me feel terribly guilty. It makes me appreciate his grace so much. And I fall on his grace on a regular basis. The more I am reminded of that, the more I see that. And I can't help but wonder if this morning there's somebody here who you're stuck in verse 9. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a waste. I, everybody, everything I touch, I'm opposite of King Midas. All these kind of things that we, we dump on ourselves. And you know what? In some ways they're true. But we just need to move to verse 10. But the grace of God didn't prove vain. I think sometimes that we like over here because that self-pity thing, it's kind of like our badge. It's a, it's a, I, I'm a victim of, of everything. I'm even a victim of my, myself for crying out loud. And, and getting the, the grace and living there in a whole different world. And I wonder if there's somebody here this morning, likewise, when Paul first talks to these guys in verse 1, where he says, I would remind you of the gospel I preached, which you received. Maybe you would say this morning, you know, I don't know if I've ever really received this gift. I don't know if I've ever really received. I heard about it, maybe, but I've never really received it. Maybe this morning is your morning. The rest of what he's going to have to say about resurrection is all based on your receiving, accepting this. And so, again, maybe this morning's your time. Maybe you need to come before him and say, Lord, I, 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 the best I can, the best I know how, I want to receive you now. Thank you for dying for me. My sins, you were buried for them. And, and you rose and this isn't just a existential fairy tale thing in reality. And I trust you. If, if you do that, 
you got to know, when the Corinthians came to know Christ, when they accepted this, their heads weren't spinning, they weren't levitating, no goofy, strange stuff going on. It was just that, that deep understanding. And perhaps, again, this is your morning to cross over the line. Let me encourage you to not put it off. Would you take a moment and pray with me?